This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The death of George Floyd led to sweeping legal changes around the country and in some cases pitted police, communities, and politicians against each other. We have generally in Montgomery County, it's true in many jurisdictions, a, a, a good police force. That doesn't mean they there is not a need for reform. Tom Hawker is president of the county council in Montgomery County, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. The stakes are higher with police because they have the, the power of life and death to take away people's freedom and to take away people's lives. Coming up in this episode of Colors. My co-host is one of the best and most trusted reporters in the country. Her name is Ellen Nakashima. She works for the Washington Post. I see... America's ability to confront and grapple with racial issues as a strength. I think if if America were to to try to repress that, it would be a liability for national security. Our guest is one of Ellen's fellow writers at The Washington Post, Michelle Lee, who is president of the Asian American Journalist Association. It's definitely been a really difficult year to be both a journalist and an Asian American. Especially after the Atlanta spa murders. Um, I had a member who was going to sleep after finding out about the shooting and had to wake up for her 3 a.m. broadcast shift and she had to go on air. And she DM'd me at 2 a.m. saying, I'm, I woke up, I cried all night, I, w- I woke up crying and I still have to put on my game face on air and I, d- I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Ellen Nakashima, and I'm a third generation Japanese American born in Hawaii. And this is Colors. We've got another great show, and uh, this is a show that I've been dreaming about for a while, and we finally were able to put this together and get the people on this program that I thought could show us the way uh, on this particular issue, and that is the Asian American journalist in a capacity that none of us can imagine. And these are two highly regarded people uh, that we'll talk to today on this program. And my co-host today is Ellen Nakashima. Ellen Nakashima is a member of two Pulitzer Prize winning reporter teams at the Washington Post and, and, and probably one of the best national security reporters in the U.S. She's trusted and respected by her readers and sources, and she's set herself apart being a really good reporter and she's good at boiling down and explaining some very complex national security issues. So, Ellen, thank you and welcome again. 
Thank you, JJ. Really honored to be with you. And I'm thrilled to have as our guest, Michelle Lee, who is president of the Asian American Journalists Association and a leading voice for Asian American journalists. Michelle is also my colleague at the Washington Post and a rising star. I first met her seven years ago when she started as a reporter on our fact checker column, where she earned her stripes fact checking, among other things, the 2016 presidential campaign. And she's risen steadily over the years to cover money and politics and and now will be moving to Tokyo, where she will be the Post's next Tokyo Seoul bureau chief. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, let's start with the present moment for Asian American journalists. In the last year, you know, for sure, it's been a tumultuous one for the country, what with the pandemic, the election and political upheaval, racial reckoning and attacks on Asian Americans. It's been tumultuous as well for Asian American reporters covering these events. What have you been hearing from Asian American reporters about their experiences over the past year and a half from your vantage point as president of AAJA? It's definitely been a really difficult year to be both a journalist and an Asian American for all those reasons you mentioned. Through AAJA, we have more than 1,800 members across the country and in Asia. And since quarantine started last year, we have been witnessing and experiencing a lot of violence and harassment toward Asian Americans, um, tying Asians to the pandemic, to the outbreak in Wuhan. And our members have been at the forefront of covering the ways that such violence and harassment have affected the Asian American community, but also been subject to harassment themselves. Some of our members have been yelled at, berated while they're doing stand-up shots. They've been blamed for bringing COVID. Um, They have face a lot of racism online uh, tied to COVID and tied to the pandemic. So our journalists themselves are experiencing that sort of treatment in real time, even as they cover the community. And broadly, you know, it's been a really hard time just to be a functioning professional, you know, so you layer on top of all of that, just that it's difficult to just live through a pandemic. Um, And increasingly, as they're covering these violence, uh, violent attacks, they're seeing repeated images and videos of elderly people, mainly people who remind them of their parents, their grandparents being attacked, bloody, slashed across the face. And that's quite traumatic. And even though as journalists, we like to say we are removed from the story, we can report objectively and not feel feelings, but we're human too. And you can't not feel some of those attacks Um, in a personal way, just because of the way um, they remind us of their, our parents and grandparents. Is this phenomenon new? Is this something that we've never experienced before as, as Asian American journalists and and then as Asian Americans? I think it's really important to think about the current moment in the context of the Asian American experience, which is a history of constant otherizing, of being a perpetual foreigner. Uh, From the moment that Asians arrived in in America, we have been excluded, uh, we have been seen as the other, and it's been a constant struggle of the community. The more you look at the history of the Asian American experience, um, you see 
example after example of Asians being uh, persecuted and being treated as foreigners, being um, people who have come into this country and created harm. And so uh, I think it's important to think about this moment in the context of that and recognize that this is not a new phenomenon. It Mm -hmm. is now getting attention but it's not new at all. And it's been this, the story of the Asian experience of um, integrating, of assimilating, yet always looking like you don't belong. Yeah, actually, I do remember writing a column in the early 1980s for my college paper about the killing of Vincent Chin, uh, who, who with a baseball bat in Detroit because of anger over competition from Japanese car imports that was leading to layoffs of the auto workers in Michigan. And Vincent Chin wasn't even Japanese, American, he was he was Chinese. And uh, I, you know, I'm interested in your sort of your own personal experiences. You wrote a really interesting first person piece right after the 2016 election that was headlined The Perils of Being a Female Asian Fact Checker in a Tense Election. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. When you're a political fact checker, you know, you kind of put yourself in the center of all criticism from every political party and and you're fact checking everyone. So you kind of take the heat. That's part of the job. But something that really stood out to me that um, because my my white male colleague surely didn't experience it, it was just how much the criticism of my work was simply the fact that I'm Asian the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that I'm an Asian woman. Um, It wasn't anything about my journalism. It was just racist, sexist comments just about who I am, how I'm born, um, which has nothing to do with my work. And no matter what I wrote, it was like, all they could see was this byline and who I am and therefore discredited whatever I did just because of my identity. And it's something that, you know, when I entered journalism, I really didn't think that this would, my identity would be thrown at me like a liability constantly, but it actually started quite early. Um, One of my first assignments, I went to the local government office where I was going to be the new beat reporter there. And one of the sources um, who I was supposed to get really close to said, oh yeah, you're the new Oriental girl, aren't you? Mm. And I remember thinking, how do I even respond to that? <laughs> mm. Does this person immediately think I'm not qualified for this job because I'm a quote unquote oriental girl? How do I even respond? And and what am I supposed to do now? And I remember thinking that at the time and wondering if this was going to continue. And surely it has mm. where because of who I am, I, it turns out to be something that people see as discreditable, I guess. Um, But you have to overcome that, uh, you know, and Mm -hmm. and figure out how to deal with those sort of sentiments and, and push back where you can. And, and one thing that I noticed from those comments that I got during the election was, you know, people would write me really discussing things and I would write back sometimes and say, so what in your opinion makes me a worse journalist just because I'm a female or um, that I'm Asian. And sometimes people write back and say, oh my goodness, I didn't know there was a real person at the end of this email. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to attack you personally. And that would actually lead to interesting discussions with the readers. It didn't happen every time, but it Mm -hmm. would lead to that sometimes. As an African-American journalist, I experienced much of the same kind of stuff um, when I came here to Washington um, years ago. Um, And 
I wanted to go back to something you said early on in response to one of Ellen's first questions uh, um, about the reporters uh, in, in your, your your organization that are being exposed to this this kind of hatred. Um, have you, as the, the president of that organization, or has that organization issued or offered, uh, suggested any kind of security um, um, uh, procedures for them to follow uh, to maybe stay stay safe? Yeah, we have. Well, we've issued statements denouncing such attacks. We um, actually early on in quarantine issued a statement denouncing anti-Asian racism overall, which was not something that AJ typically does. But we felt the need to because it, uh, the such sentiments were so rampant and also targeting our members. And we ended up um, connecting our members to resources for um, like you know, bystander training or on-the-job training, security training, um, so that they could protect themselves. We connected them with uh, press freedom organizations that could help them uh, with resources. And we also provided some mental health support. And we've been increasing uh, the types of mental health support we do because we also recognize that our journalists uh, don't get that sort of support. And partly it's cultural. Uh, mental health is still quite stigmatized among many Asian American communities. So they're not always equipped to think about that or know how to get that help. So we've been um, bringing in licensed therapists who deal with trauma and, and work with journalists to help our members sort through the experiences that they're having and also have the emotional tools to process them. I've read a couple of things, Michelle, that you wrote related to the Atlanta spa shootings. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you could tell me from your personal vantage point, the day of the shootings, when you learned about them, what did you feel? How did you feel? The shootings happened uh, like evening Eastern time. And I remember going to sleep thinking that tomorrow is going to be a really tough day for our members and it's going to be a busy day for AAJA. So the first thing I did when I woke up was I wrote a message to the membership, letting them know that they're not alone in feeling hurt and feeling shook is what many of the members were telling me. Um, I had a member who was going to sleep after finding out about the shooting and had to wake up for her 3 a.m. broadcast shift and she had to go on air. And she DM'd me at 2 a.m. saying, I'm, I woke up, I cried all night, I, w- I woke up crying and I still have to put on my game face on air and I, d- I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it. And when I saw that, when I woke up, I was like, our mem- members need us. Our members, many of them are the only Asians in their newsroom, one of few or, or the only one. And they're going to feel really invisible and they're not going to know how to deal with this moment. And I want to be there for them. So the first thing I did was make sure that they're not alone, that they're seen, they're not invisible. After that, it was a matter of helping guide the news coverage of it. And uh, we knew that we had to be there for newsrooms to help them cover the Asian American community accurately and fairly in that moment and and beyond in follow up. And when we saw newsrooms rush to quote the the sheriff who had um, who was saying the suspect told him that it wasn't racially motivated, that it was a simple sex addiction and he just was having a very bad day. We knew at that moment, oh, we need to actually help newsrooms figure out how to cover this, because Mm -hmm. if you're Asian American 
if you're an Asian American woman, you know that racism and sexualization and sexual violence have always been intertwined in the history of Asian American women in this country. Um, it goes back to colonialism and sexualization of, of Asian women throughout our history here in this country. So we quickly worked to issue guidance. There were like dozens of members who were involved in putting it all together. We got it up fairly quickly. And the moment it went up, our website crashed within 20 minutes because wow. so many newsrooms were looking for that guidance. Uh, later on, I, I found out that um, our guidance was being spread through civic organizations, through university alumni organizations, businesses, corporations, people, just uh, social circles, people who were lacking the vocabulary to make sense of the shooting. And that's what we were able to help guide. Do you feel it made a difference and including at the Washington Post? Absolutely. I mm -hmm. I know for a fact that our guidance was circulated throughout newsrooms across the country. We saw headlines change. We saw questions asked of the sheriff change. Um, and especially after the after the coverage, after the initial coverage and follow up stories, we saw more efforts or at least conversations on Twitter and, and other public spaces among journalists trying to grapple with the fact that um, they didn't know enough about the women, but there was so much coverage about the shooter and journalists were trying to really shift that um, narrative and make it more victim centric. And we definitely saw a shift in the way people were talking about the shooting um, and then how the questions were asked of the sheriff's office. One of the points you've often made is that Asian Americans, I think they make up about five to six percent of the U.S. population, but they're underrepresented in in American newsrooms. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you think needs to be done to change that? Absolutely. There's not a whole lot of data to begin with on journalists and the demographics of journalists. Uh, but what we do have through uh, the News Leaders Association shows that Asian Americans are, are not only underrepresented in newsrooms compared to our percentage of the population, we're very underrepresented the higher you go up in the management chain. So when it comes to news managers, Asian Americans are vastly underrepresented. And I think that uh, lack of representation certainly shows in instances like the Atlanta shooting, that was a really vivid example of the fact that um, there clearly was a lack of uh, people uh, shaping the news coverage who were familiar with the Asian American experience or even knew who to ask to learn more about the Asian American experience. Um, you know, I think there are many, many things the news industry needs to do to rectify this. Among them is making sure that they recruit and retain and hire and promote um, Asian American journalists as a part of their broader diversity initiatives. But I think there also needs to be constant year round efforts to have conversations around how we cover communities, not just Asians, but every community throughout the country. It can't be done in just a breaking news situation where you're responding to a shooting and everything is like, you know, so hectic and difficult. It has to be an ongoing conversation about how our coverage is done, the resources that we use to do that coverage, the community organizations that we incorporate into our coverage, um, how reporters are able to bring feedback to their editors, how resources get shared up and down the management chain. All of those things need to be done on a constant basis so that we're training our newsrooms to accurately cover our communities and not just in the moment where it's a crisis situation. One of the things, Michelle, 
and Ellen, I'd like both of you to weigh in on this if you're if you're okay with it. Um, is it's my understanding through some conversations with colleagues and friends and acquaintances, and even some conversations here on this very podcast, that there's been a, some longstanding hostility between people of Japanese and Korean des- descent. Has either of you ever experienced that in any way, Michelle first, and then Ellen? I think. Well, there historically, yes, there is um, tension between Japan and, and South Korea. Uh, you know, going back to wartime, and currently, for example, um, the relationship between Japan and South Korea is very bad. Um, historically bad, I think. In the past couple decades, it's been at it's an it's at a very low point. I personally have not drawn those distinctions between me and other Asian Americans in this country. I think. There is a certain flatten, flattening of identity that happens when you emigrate and you come to a new place. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the bad things about it is that everyone sees you as just another Asian American. They don't understand the nuances of the Asian American experience. There are some 50 ethnicities and even more languages and dialects within the AAPI community. And that's one but thing that we on this program endeavor to do is to deal with those differences. Um, yes. and, and so that's a part of the reason why I'm asking that question question. So thank you for saying that. But that's a part of what exactly we want to do on this show. Right. Yeah. And the other part is that, you know, sometimes to me, that doesn't really matter. The Korea Japan thing as a Korean American is not really at the forefront of my mind as an American, you know? Yeah. Let me say I grew up in Hawaii where uh, Asian Americans were, if not a majority, there were plurality, certainly. In fact, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, there was maybe one white kid in my entire grade. And I used to feel sorry for them. I would go out of my way to make friends with them because I felt like they were kind of left out and marginalized. So you can imagine the diversity of of Asians and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders we had there, right? And amongst Asians who were Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and Filipino uh, Americans. My my mom has um, seven brothers and two of them married uh, Korean Women, I think Korean nationals, you know, moved to Hawaii and then became American citizens. So, you know, we are aware of the geopolitical maybe uh, tensions, but at a personal level, they became part of the family and they brought their, uh, you know, their wonderful uh, bulgogi and dishes to our our dinners, family dinners, where the Japanese ladies would make the sushi and, (laughs) you know, we'd have just great uh, island dinners. So. Yeah. And I think for the maybe those divides are more uh, on the top of mind for first generation immigrants. But for mm-hmm. for me, you know, as a child of immigrants, 1.5, I consider myself. Um, I also grew up with Japanese uh, immigrants around me all the time. And it was just I love the diversity of it. Uh, like Ellen, I, I grew up on an island. I grew up in Guam where Asians are also plurality there. And I went to my Japanese friends' homes and they came to mine and we all appreciate each other's foods and cultures. And I think that is the beauty of what you can grow if you um, come to a place like America and you have that mixing of cultures from an early age. Yeah, where I I spent my first, you know, 18, 19 years in Hawaii where I did not feel like a minority. It was only when I moved to the quote unquote mainland for college, uh, transferred to Berkeley, that I I sort of realized what it was like to live in a place where I was no longer, you know, part of more like a, 
uh, majority or plurality. And, and so that was an, it was an eye-opening experience, but I had within me this sense of self by having been raised in a place where I didn't feel like a minority. So I think mm-hmm. that helped shape, in a way, my sense of identity. Yeah. Let me ask this question. Both of you have written about national security issues. Ellen, you do it all the time. And Michelle, mm-hmm. uh, some of your work has been on national security. I uh, saw something you wrote recently about the Quad. Um, and so does either of you see America's racial issues as a national security issue in any way? I see America's ability to confront and grapple with racial issues as a strength. I think if if America were to to try to repress that, it would be a liability for national security. It's the kind of thing that happens in in autocracies, authoritarian countries. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that America, I mean, it's it's not pleasant. It's often ugly and violent, but it's necessary. It's a necessary racial reckoning. And I'd like to see America, uh, you know, grow from it. And the, the more America, the United States can, can acknowledge these issues and try to deal with them and grapple with them and and resolve them, the stronger it will be as a country and, 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 you know, claim a rightful place as sort of it's a leader of, of the free world democracies. Mm-hmm. What about you, Michelle? I think that th- that's a really great point. I, I guess the only thing I would add is um, uh, the fact that America deals with these racial issues um, in this sort of public and sometimes painful and, and messy way, yeah. um, I think does set a standard for other countries to uh, deal with some of their tensions uh, geopolitically, too. I'm thinking more specifically about like U.S., Japan, South Korea, trilateral relations right now, where Japan and Korea are very much butting heads with, you know, long time wartime issues and um for us to come in and say hey let's get over our wartime problems and um put history behind us and move forward um it's hard for the us to say that when it is still dealing with the ramifications of its own civil war and uh showing other countries that those those sorts of tensions still lie even domestically in our country so um you know I, i agree with ellen that putting kind of almost like wearing it on our sleeves and saying like, look, we're dealing with this in our own country. Uh, it is a matter of security for us. It's a matter of growth and, and prosperity for us. And we also want to work with other countries to help, um, you know, smooth over tensions and improve geopolitical relations. I think that could be used as a, a strength. Ellen, over to you. Well, I think we've gone through a lot of them. I was also just interested generally, Michelle, in your take on the treatment and representation of Asian Americans in in mainstream you know, film and television. Uh, you know, we've progressed from the days of, of Bruce Lee or, or where you know, white people portrayed stereotyped Asian characters. Um, do, do you think that that Asian Americans now uh, are, you know, more f- sort of fairly represented in in the mainstream culture and television and movies, or are they still sort of sexualized and stereotyped? What's your sense? I think progress is being made, but it's very slow, you know, and I think the caricatures um, are not as overt as they once were. 
but the marginalization is still there. Um, you know, it may not have been as uh, farcical as like, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it, we, we also had like, I think Scarlett Johansson was playing an Asian character in a movie recently, if I'm recalling it correctly. Um, and, and for example, just this year, Minari, which is a Korean American film made by a Korean American director with Korean American actors. And it's a, it's a very at its core American immigrant story was nominated as a foreign language film um, by the Golden Globes. And even though it was made by Americans, for Americans, about Americans, um, just because Korean was a language that was used uh, for the most part in the story, I mean, in the movie. So I think, you know, you're starting to see more representation, um, more diversity of stories being told, but I still see sy systemically not enough of those stories being told or or them being embraced as part of just the American oeuvre of art and um, media. Uh, you know, even Minari itself was like a really um, not well-funded, very independent project that wasn't a big studio project, things like that. I think um, Asian American stories in general throughout the media, throughout pop culture, um, have a long way to go for it to become a part of the mainstream consciousness. What have you learned in the last year that might impact how you view race moving forward? Michelle? Um, I think in the Last year, I've learned that um, Asian Americans have have had these race conversations in our own circles for a long time, but it has yet to, uh -huh. you know, really pierce the national dialogue. And I think now we're seeing a more of a national movement to talk about these things and, and integrate Asians okay. into the conversations about race. Okay. And I think I've learned that we have a place there. We need to be there. We need to be talking about our issues and, and our relationships with other minority communities as well and take a more forward-looking approach um, to be a part of the race dialogue in the country. Okay. Ellen? Yeah, I I guess I was um, a little I was surprised and, and disturbed by the rash of attacks and violence against Asian Americans, you know, across the country uh, over the last year that seemed to be in response to okay. the, um, you know, the pandemic and the labeling of, of COVID as the Kung flu and that sort of thing. Um, but was also About gratified. A few seconds left. Yeah. Gratified to see the outpouring, you know, of, of support from, 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 neighbors, strangers, family, friends, as well as, uh, you know, public leaders. And, and I think, you know, overall that, that is a good thing. I'm, okay. I'm hoping that the, uh, the trend will, will continue, you know, greater awareness paid to the diversity of American, Asian Americans, that we're not a monolith and that we are, you know, full 100% Americans. We just happen to have, uh, ancestors or family who came from you know across the, the Pacific. Yeah. Would you would you maybe take a, a quick minute, both of you, to talk about this non-monolithic thing? Uh because that is an issue um that I know that is a, a, of importance to you, but it's also to me too, because as an African American, we get that all the time as well. As an American, Americans for some reason you know, whatever reason, um, we engage in that in this country, and it's just not right. But would you give me, give me your views very quickly on this, uh, Michelle, first? 
Sure. The API, the Asian American Pacific Islander community, it's almost, it's, it's such a flattening term because it overlooks the diversity of the community, which is some 50 different ethnic groups, many, many more languages and dialects, beautiful different cultures, different types of foods. But we are all, at the end of the day, Asian American. And, you know, I think something that is not fully appreciated is the fact that there are, there are different experiences within the Asian American community that are, are that need to be paid attention to, even though many people hold us to the model minority myth of being the ones who go to, uh, go to, go to college, go to Harvard, do well on SATs. We also have great poverty and homelessness and income inequality within the Asian American um, diaspora. And it's really important to keep that in mind, not to put one label or one stereotype or expectation on anyone who looks like they're Asian or Pacific Islander, but recognizing that we all are humans with different life experiences. Just because we look one way doesn't mean um, one thing about our whole community. Um, Ellen? That's exactly right. I I, I would really, uh, Michelle just summed it up perfectly. Um, you know, so I don't think I could add much to that. Well, let me just say thank you. First of all, to Michelle Lee for being our guest today. You've been, as Ellen said, dynamic, um, or she indicated she didn't use those words, but uh, my view is that you were absolutely <laughs> dynamic today in bringing uh, some 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 understanding to this issue. Uh, and Ellen, you well, you you were Ellen, and, and as I said at the top of the program, <laughs> you're very good um, and uh, at journalism and. You don't win two Pulitzers just by being just very good at journalism. You have to have um, some some other skills too, uh, and, and namely the ability to engage. And you did that really, really well today. So thank you. Thank you so much, JJ. Thanks for including me, and thank you to Ellen. She's a journalist I admire so much, and it's been a pleasure and a blessing to share this conversation with her. Back at you, Michelle. Can't wait to see what you're going to do when you're in Tokyo. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll all be watching. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> you're listening to Colors. Hi, my name is Jerry. I'm an African-American from Bowie, Maryland, by way of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. And race relations, in my opinion, over the last 35 years in America, have taken two steps forward and within the last four, three steps back. What is needed is open, direct, and honest dialogue. My name is Mindy Peterson. I'm a white woman from the Midwest. I live in a Minneapolis suburb and the George Floyd killing hit very close to home for me. It's right here in my community. And along with the graphic camera footage that was available, it really got my attention. Since then, I've been learning a lot about white privilege and have been asking myself, what can I do right now to be part of the solution to the problem of racism? This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America. Well, Ellen, I knew when I reached out to you that this was going to be a great show. And, you know, I, I spoke to my wife about this and she said, yep, she's going to be good. And, you know, whoever she brings is going to be good, too. And, um, I, I, you know, it came true. It happened, it worked, and I'm so happy that you were able to do this and bring Michelle along. But what really is impressive to me is that within your 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 engagement, 
you've done some serious thinking about these young people that are in this organization. The AAJA, you've done some serious thinking about people in that organization and what they're facing, what they're dealing with, in addition to your constituency, the people you write for every day in your own families. Mm -hmm. And clearly you and Michelle have had some conversations about that. So that was really good to hear the camaraderie, not just as people of Asian descent, but as, as co-workers and as people who have a general larger concern for humanity. Absolutely, JJ. And I guess I also kind of want to go back to my roots. I mean, coming from Hawaii, which is really, I don't want to romanticize it, but it is sort of a rainbow of, of colors. Yeah. And it it instilled in me an appreciation for uh, the, the idea of diversity, of of appreciating, celebrating your heritage, yes, but also appreciating that of others. And because there is so much mixing and, you know, going on there, we've got my my nephew is married to a woman who's half Filipino, half white, and they've got beautiful kids. And so there's just this, it's natural that you will, you know, marry people from other uh, ethnic backgrounds, religions. My own husband is a, a Jewish American um, journalist from New Jersey, and we have a beautiful daughter adopted from Indonesia. She calls herself brown skinned. And, you know, we raised her here in, in Washington, D.C., where she we live in a predominantly white neighborhood. And, you know, she's talked about being you know, what it's like to feel like a brown skinned Asian um, where the few other Asians there are, are more, you know, East Asian. So even there, there's a little bit of a feeling of being slightly marginal or, or, or otherized, as Michelle would put it. So I guess I'm, you know, sensitized to the idea of a value of, of striving for the appreciation of diversity mm-hmm. in, in, in all of its meanings. And I think if we can absorb that as as a value to be celebrated as part of what it is to be American, you know, that will strengthen us as a society, as as it strengthen our national security. It's not something one often talks about right in national security it, yeah. as as national security reporters. You know, we're most of us are generally, you know, not people of color. Um, and I know the intelligence agencies are striving to try to make some changes and make their uh, their workforce more diverse and reflect America and the world. But it's it's going to be, you know, it's going to take some time. And so I'm just really glad that there are young uh, journalists like Michelle who are out there and taking positions of leadership and bringing up organizations like AAJA. And, and working with the other journalist associations, NABJ, NAHJ, for instance. Yeah. You know, um, just one thing very quickly I want to ask, um, you know, I, I, being in the national security space as, as, as a reporter for a while myself, you know, I've felt and seen that um, the ugly side of, of race in that as well. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I have hoped for, and hopefully we'll see that sometime in in the near future, is that more people that look like me doing this, um, because people I don't think really get or even know that, you know, there is a need to have people 
who look like everybody, not just working for these agencies, but covering these agencies and organizations as well. Uh, so that, uh, you know, not only do you, you, you get essentially the understanding of what it is that they want you at the agencies and organizations to know, but you also get the interpretation from the, the reporters who come from our, our various communities uh, of what they're saying, uh, how, how, to, how they interpret that uh, for their communities and for their, their, their readers, viewers, and listeners. So um, I would ask one last thing on this. Um, Washington has been in a pretty ugly space for a while now when it comes to some of these things racially. Um, you know, some of it had to do with last summer with the Lafayette Square situation. Um, and some of it has to do with uh, the January 6th riot situation. Just wondering, you personally, have you found yourself uh, feeling anxious or concerned at all personally because of that? And then, of course, the COVID, you know, problems. Yeah, no, I often get asked that question. Um, Maybe it's partly because I of the pandemic and I just been in in lockdown for much of the last year and a half. And partly uh, the fact that I'm, you know, not a television reporter. I I work in print. Uh, I do have, you know, I've gotten, uh, depending on the story, I've gotten uh, attacked on you know, through emails, vitriolic tweets, things like that. But never to the point where I felt physically threatened uh, to the point where I would, you know, need to make sure I had security out front, although the Washington Post does provide that if if its reporters are physically threatened. And it never got that bad. I don't I live in a community that's, you know, fairly, uh, uh, you know, upper middle class, I guess, white. And there was not a lot of overt hostility toward, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Asian Americans on the streets, for instance. And yeah. so in that respect, I think I was I was spared. But it was very disturbing to to see what was going on right here in in the streets of of our city and our capital. Well, Ellen Nakashima, this has been a true blessing and a true uh, honor to talk with you and uh, your guest Michelle Lee today. So thank you very much. Thank you, JJ, for having me and having Michelle. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Ellen Nakashima, and I'm a national security reporter with The Washington Post and an Asian American. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Derek Chauvin, the man who killed George Floyd, is sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. But this little girl, Gianna Floyd, is still without a father. What do you miss most about your daddy? Well, I ask about him all the time. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Well, when you ask about him, what are you asking about? Well, I was asking, how did my dad get hurt? Do you wish that he was still here with us? Yeah, but he is. The heartbreaking reality for her and the nation as we try to close this horrible chapter 
in American history. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, send us an email at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. It's time to go. And before we do that, we want to say thank you to some people. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley. Thank you to the New York Times race-related section, the Washington Post, the Radio Television Digital News Association for their support. Thank you to Rose Varner-Gaskins, Sean Anderson, Cortland Cox, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Sue Rushkowski, Greg Christian. Thanks to Daryl Green, who's probably still the fastest man in the NFL. Thanks to Marvin Worthy, Linda Worthy, Matt Fogel, Elena Fortney. Thank you to Hagar Chamali. And for the music, thank you, Jesse Gallagher. Thank you, Cosmic. And thank you, Offshane. And most of all, a gigantic thank you to you for listening. And finally, just remember, keep talking to each other. And most importantly, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors a dialogue on race in America.